1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you wouldn't mind standing, please, for the reading of God's Word, if you are able. Verses 14 through 22. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in the city of Corinth. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of God. And you may be seated. From this passage, I'll preach this morning before we come to the table from the, the title, Fellowship with Christ. Uh, on, on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday evening, after our online Bible study wrapped up, Maggie asked me how it went, and I, I told her that I had especially enjoyed our small group discussion that night, and, and I was kind of marveling at how a group of mostly strangers can move toward one another in vulnerability and honesty, even over Zoom. I've been a Christian for a long time, and, and it still feels miraculous somehow how diverse people are drawn together in Christ. In, in this letter to the Christians in Corinth, Paul used the image of bread to capture this miracle. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The Corinthians had written to the apostle asking if they could continue participating in feasts dedicated to idols after having given their lives to Christ. And using the imagery and the logic that we find in these verses, Paul explained that they could no longer participate in these feasts because they also now participated in the Lord's Supper. It has been strange to celebrate Holy Communion during the pandemic holding the bread and the cup up to the camera, trusting that somebody has been on the other side, scrambling for your saltines and apple juice or apple crackers and Chardonnay or leftover rice and oat milk or whatever it is that you're trying to get your hands on. It's been strange for all of us. But I want to testify this morning that for as strange as Holy Communion has been during the pandemic, it has also been essential. Meaning, as we have gathered around this sacramental meal from our scattered homes, Christ has held us together. Meaning that Christ has literally, physically held us together. Somebody say amen. amen. 
And so before coming to the table in a few minutes, whether in person here in Kennecott or online, I want to reflect on the power of this sacred meal. We have each been subject to the forces that would spin us apart, away from our Savior, away from each other. Like the Corinthians, we too are tempted away from Christ and his people by idols and ideologies. And yet, here we are still. We are held together by the presence of Christ. And so this morning, I hope we will see this one thing, that we are pulled away from idolatry and to one another by Christ's body and blood. There are two movements here, pulled away and pulled to, pulled away from idolatry and pulled to one another. Let's take them one at a time, and then we'll come to the table together. We are pulled away from idolatry by Christ's body and blood. Back in chapter 8, Paul writes, Now, concerning food sacrifice to idols, it seems that the church in Corinth had written Paul a letter that he was now responding to. And one of their questions was whether they could continue to participate in ritual meals where the food had been sacrificed to idols. Now, that might sound like a strange question to our ears, but, but this was just the normal stuff of life for the Corinthian Christians. This was the, the air that they breathed. This was just the way that society was structured, what everybody did. And, and so they, they wondered, can we still do this? In, in verse 4 of chapter 8, Paul says, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. So it sounds as though Paul might say, it's fine for you to go ahead and participate in these ritual meals because we know that there's no actual gods behind these idols, and, and we know that there is only one God. So what harm could there be in participating in these ritual feasts? But then in verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul says that the Corinthians need to flee from the worship of idols. And in our passage, he makes it very clear that they are not to participate in these ritual meals. Paul is saying, on the one hand, that idols are nothing, because there is only one God, and on the other hand, have nothing to do with idols. Why? Well, in verse 20 of our passage, we get Paul's logic. He says, what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. Paul is agreeing with the Corinthians that, that you're right, there is no God behind the idols that are being sacrificed to. But Paul says these idols are animated by what he will call in Ephesians chapter 6 the spiritual forces of evil. These sacrificial feasts point away from God. They are a kind of collusion with demonic forces. And Paul's very clear about this. He, he says that, that to participate in these feasts is to, is to partner with demons. And the word partner here is the Greek word koinonia. It's a word we talk about a fair bit. We would maybe translate it as fellowship much of the time. It's a kind of relationality. Paul says that to 
participate in these feasts is to, to be in koinonia with the spiritual forces of evil. Now, I can imagine at least four different possible responses to what I just said. The, the first would be, that's bananas. Um, and, and this maybe response reflects an idea of, of a closed universe where what you see is what you see. And what is true is what can be empirically proven. And, and this is a, a relatively common way of moving through our world today, particularly in many Western cultural spaces. And, and I just want to point out that this instinct requires an act of faith. Uh, that to say that the universe is closed in that way and that there, there couldn't be these spiritual forces behind them is to make a faith claim that cannot be empirically proven in the way that would be required to describe a closed universe. Are you with me? It's understandable. I get that instinct. I would question it. A second instinct here would be to say, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to see behind every trouble that we face in this life a demon. <laughs> to, to chalk up every trouble, every sickness, every hardship that we experience to, to the spiritual forces of evil. The problem with this is that it's not biblical. Uh, because because uh, uh, evil and the spiritual forces of evil and Satan are not on the same playing field as our God. Amen. And in fact, we know that, that much of our own hardship in this world is of our own making. <laughs> that we didn't need any spiritual force of evil to lead us off track. That we're pretty good at doing that ourselves. We know that we live in a creation that is itself groaning and waiting for God's liberation. A third possible instinct here to this idea of, 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 of the spiritual forces of evil animating these meals is to say, well, well, yeah, maybe that was true then. I can see that in a, in, a, in a less advanced society, in a less enlightened culture, but, but not today. That, that kind of thing is not as common or as normal today. And, and that maybe sounds silly to some of you, but I have heard more than one person at least assume such a thing. And I would suggest that the problem with this instinct is something we might call paternalism. <laughs> to say that somehow we have it more together than those in the early church, and if we're really honest, that we somehow know more and are more enlightened than, than sisters and brothers who share our faith, but who have very different cultural starting points than we might have in this country. Let me suggest a fourth response to this idea. Humility. Humility. To, to be willing to ask ourselves, how might we be susceptible to the same sorts of things that the Corinthian Christians found themselves susceptible to? Our circumstances might be very different. My hunch is that none of you have been invited to a feast lately where you were going to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But in humility, we might ask ourselves, where are those tendencies in our day? in our culture, in our lives? How are we susceptible? You see, for the Corinthians and those in their culture, the idols around them represented a few different things. It represented a source of identity. It represented a source of security. And it represented a source of belonging. Identity, security, belonging. And, and all of these were promised apart from the one God revealed in Jesus Christ. 
Where are those places in our lives today? Where do we seek identity, security, and belonging apart from the one God revealed in Jesus Christ? Somebody say amen if you're with me. Now, we might ask whether, whether we are supposed to then avoid all idolatrous places, all places where there might be that kind of idolatry happening. And the answer is an unequivocal no. We are called into the world to love this world. We are meant to be light and salt in this world. And in fact, in this passage later on, Paul will say very clearly, look, if you're out shopping and you've got to buy some meat and you don't know if it was sacrificed to an idol, don't worry about it. It's fine. You can buy it. If, if a neighbor invites you over to their home and, and prepares a, a, a meal for you and you're not sure where that food came from, it's okay. You can sit down and enjoy that meal. So we are called to love this world and be present to this world. Amen. The call here is not to a kind of isolationism, not to a kind of holy huddle with just a bunch of Christians doing our own thing. That's not the vision at all. The problem is, is that the Corinthian Christians wanted to participate in these things in the way that everybody else participated in them, right? They might have said, well, well in our heads and in our hearts, we know that, that there's no God behind this idol, but in their actions and in how they lived, nobody else around them would have been able to notice that. They wanted to blend in. There would be nothing distinctive about the way they participated and the way that everybody else participated in these things. Friends, we are to be in this world firmly without finding our identity, our security, or our belonging in it. What does that look like for us? What are, the, what are the places where we might be susceptible to that? Well, I, I, I'm hesitant to suggest very much here because our location is different than the Corinthians were, and your life is different than my life. I think that question requires Holy Spirit wisdom and discernment. Amen? Uh, but at the risk of saying too much, let me suggest three kind of areas that we find in the letter that maybe would apply to us as well. Three kind of realms where we might be susceptible in the same way that the, the Corinthians were. The first would be money. In, 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 the, in the letter here, Paul says that the, the, the Christians in Corinth are to be known for their radical generosity, giving intentionally for the good of people they will never meet who are going through hardship themselves that they are not to hoard for themselves or keep for themselves, but to be radically generous. Also related to money, the church is to, to, to disrupt the classist status quo of the Greco-Roman society, a society that was built on a clear class hierarchy of who's in and who's out, of who has access and who doesn't have access. That classist hierarchy was meant to be radically disrupted by the, by the Christians. How they lived and worshipped and ate together would be a reflection of a completely different reality. So, so money would be one realm where in our own lives we might reflect a little bit and say, are there ways that I have found identity? Are there ways that I found security? Are there ways that I have found belonging? that are not rooted in the worship of the one God revealed in Jesus. 
The second big category in Corinthians is sex. Paul repeatedly in different ways says that for Christians, sex will be confined to marriage for both women and men. Now we go, okay, okay. But in that time, in that place, this was a kind of radical leveling of the way that people actually thought about sex, which was very different for men than it was for, for women. Men had all sorts of prerogatives as it related to, 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 to their sexuality that women were not allowed. And Paul puts a vision here that's totally different, totally outside the, the bounds of the Greco-Roman society, a, a sign of God's exclusive covenant love for his people. Paul also in this letter and other letters holds up singleness, and he actually esteems the single life above the married life. Now, that was wild back then, and I would suggest, if we're honest, it's just as wild today. Paul says that, that the single person is actually to be more highly esteemed vocationally than, than the married person. Again, in that place, in that time, this would have been a particular word for women who were expected to find their identity, their purpose, their place in marriage. And Paul says, not anymore for the church that in Christ you are enough, period, period, and that your vocation of singleness is to be highly esteemed. Here's the last category that I suggest we reflect on, power. In a recent article, professor of religious studies Isaac T. Soon suggests that the thorn in his flesh, which Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians, was likely a disability of some kind. And here's what he, he writes. He says, In the life and the body of the man whose job it was to bring the gospel to the nations, physical disability was a crucial and honorable witness to God's own strength. Paul's life was an inversion of cultural norms that presumed human existence without pain and suffering was the divine ideal. It is instructive to remember, too, that even in Christ's own glorified body, his wounds remain, no longer a source of suffering, but a sign of victory. Paul's paradox of power in weakness, listen, puts disability right where it belongs. Disability is not at the margins. It is not liminal. It is at the center. And that was as strange in Paul's day as it is in ours. It's not the cultural standards of beauty or ability which display the power of the gospel. It's disability, which most closely reflects Christ's salvation. And so here, too, in the realm of power, we might be invited to reflect about our own relationship to power, our desire for power, our own experience with weakness, and perhaps with those who've experienced more weakness or even disability in this life. Is our engagement in the area of power in any way reflective of a kind of idolatry where we have found identity 
and belonging and security in something other than the one God revealed in Jesus. Now, I, I think there may be a couple ways to hear this, this pull away from idolatry. The first would be relinquishment. Because if we're honest and we reflect, some of us are actually okay with our participation in idolatry. <laughs> what I mean is that, that some of us have found identity and security and uh, belonging in places other than God, and it's actually working out pretty good for us. Like our bank accounts are okay. And the people we spend time with are the people we want to spend time with. That, that we don't in some way feel bad about our association with idolatry. It's worked out pretty good for us. And so honestly, part of the call for some of us this morning, the pull away from will feel like a relinquishment, an act of faith where we open up our hands to release something that, frankly, if we're honest, we'd rather hang on to. And that's an act of faith. You might need some help in that. You might need to tell somebody in your community that you would prefer to hang on to this thing, that it's actually meeting a deep need in your life, at least for this moment, and that you need some sisters and brothers to walk alongside of you. But I think for others of us, we might hear this in a little bit of a different way. Rather than relinquishment, we hear rescue. Because some of us in this room, we understand that no matter what the idol promises, it always leads to captivity no matter how glittering that thing is, that no matter how appealing it is culturally, that the underside of that thing is always captivity of some sort. And that captivity might be masked by affluence. That captivity might be masked by your ability to move around. That captivity might be masked by, by your education, by your strength, but that captivity still shows up in your life, if we're honest. And some of us understand that the pull away from is actually a rescue. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody been rescued by some idols by the body and the blood of Jesus? Fellowship with Christ through his shed blood, through his broken body, pulls us away from this world's idols, whether that feels like a relinquishment or a rescue. And then the other movement here is that we are pulled to one another by Christ's body and blood. In words that we say every time we celebrate communion, Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? The word sharing, it's the same word koinonia, fellowship with Christ, that relationality with Jesus. This is not just belief about Jesus. This is not what you think about your faith. This is deeply enmeshed in your personhood, this koinonia, this partnership with Christ. Have you ever been talking with somebody who was married for a long time, say 30, 40, 50 years, whose spouse has recently passed away? And as you're talking with this person, you have a sense that that deceased spouse is still in the conversation that you can feel their loving presence in the way that the, the, that the other spouse, the living spouse, is, is engaging with you. Anybody had that experience before? 
where that person has been so profoundly shaped by, by their beloved over the course of decades that they carry in their body the memory of this person. I think that's the kind of fellowship that Paul's getting at here. Again, it's not just about what we know. It's that our lives have been so caught up in the life of Jesus that they cannot be in, uh, 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 taken apart, disentangled. Now, communion uh, is different than the pagan feasts that the Corinthians were asking about because those feasts had, had food that had been sacrificed. But at our table, there is no sacrificed food because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. So we remember that sacrifice at our table. So to bring the point a little closer to home, Paul has the people reflect on the people of Israel who when they would, would, would come to their festivals and to their celebratory meals and their sacrifices, they would do so consciously knowing that they were in the presence of God. They were eating and feasting and celebrating consciously in God's presence. Communion is the tangible reminder that we exist in the presence of God always that we are never outside of the presence of God, that we exist in fellowship with Jesus Christ no matter if we know it or not, whether we're intentional about it or not, whether we've sinned knowably or not, that we are caught up inextricably and eternally, eternally in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And then Paul says that we are also in fellowship with each other. Fellowship with God, as represented in communion, precludes us from fellowship with idols, but it also draws us to one another. Usually in the New Testament, when, we when the scriptures talk about the Lord's Supper, it's the cup first, and then it's the bread. But here, and only here, the bread comes first. Because it seems as though Paul is wanting to emphasize that we also have fellowship with one another. That we who are many, are one, that we who have had many different experiences in, in this life, that we who come from many different cultures, who have many different perspectives, who have a variety of different sorts of doubts and dreams, we who have a many different kinds of wounds and losses and hopes and expectations, that in Christ we are made one. When we are drawn to Christ, the many is not erased. The many are held together by the presence of Jesus. So back to my, my, my Bible study experience on Wednesday, I found myself thinking, where else would I be in relationship with these women and men? In what other situation would I be able to hear their testimonies to God's faithfulness? Would I get to know and hear about what they're struggling through? Would I get to know what they care about, what they're longing for, what they're praying for? The many in Christ are held together as the one body. So here's my really practical suggestion. No, 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 not suggestion. Request. Not quite a command, James, a request. Do a quick little audit of your relational life. Who are the people who have most access to you? Uh, I, I heard a pastor once say, who has refrigerator rights in your, in your, like, that means who can walk into your, into your home and just open up your refrigerator and help themselves, right? Like, like, like who, who will, 
Who will you go to when the bottom falls out? Who will you share the really hard stuff with? Who, who would you entrust your nieces and nephews to, your children to? Do a little relational audit of your life and then ask yourself, does that relational network, does that koinonia, does that fellowship look any different because of my location within the body of Christ than it would otherwise? And here's the good thing. For many of you, I know the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, some of you are like, look, apart from Jesus, there's no way, no way I'd be hanging out with. I mean, you're probably thinking me right now, and that's fine. That's okay. But for others of us, there's going to be an invitation here. Because if we're honest and we look at the kind of ecosystem of our relationships, say, like, actually, it's not all that different. So here's the really good news. You can do something about that. Amen? Just look around the room right now. Like, for real, look around the room. Look around the room. Online people, I don't know, comment, say something. Like you have access to each other. There, there is not a, a, a social hierarchy club where you have to go to Pastor Michelle and say, hey, I'd like to invite this person over to lunch someday. I want to have... No, 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 no. You just walk up to the person and you just say, can we have coffee? And some of you are like, I don't know if I could do that. Don't everybody go up to Melody and do that today because she's kind of a little bit introverted. It's her birthday. You know, maybe wait till next Sunday for that. But we get to do that with one another as sisters and brothers in Christ. Amen? We don't just come and worship in the same room together. We have access to one another's lives. Some of you have been looking for a mentor. Well, you can come to me or Pastor Michelle. We'll do our best to hook you up with a mentor. But maybe the Holy Spirit has put someone on your mind. You're like, I don't even really know that person. But you have permission. Now, you're going to do it in a tactful way. You're going you know, to be emotionally healthy and all that kind of stuff. But we actually have agency in what the, the reconciled nature of our relationships looks like. Amen? We get to actively participate in this. And again, some of you could testify to how good God has been in this particular way in your life. By Christ's body and blood, we who are many are pulled together in fellowship. Um, I'm, I'm almost done, and then we'll, we'll have you come up for, for communion. At the table, we remember that we have been rescued from this world's idols and ideologies. We remember that though they promised us identity, security, and belonging, these so-called gods could only offer us captivity. We remember that our fellowship with Christ leaves no room for those usurpers and deceivers. At the table, we remember that we belong to one another. We who are many in so many different ways are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, the bread who is our Savior. This is my body for you. And most of all, at the table, we remember the one whose blood is the covenant of love and whose body is the bread of life. We remember the one whose blood covers our sin and in whose body we are kept safe. We remember that in Christ, anything that initially feels like relinquishment is actually a rescue for our flourishing. 
So friends, let me end with this. I think these two years have reminded us of our limits. We cannot hold ourselves together. The integrity of our friendships and our family are beyond our capacity to control. The forces of sin and evil, which the Jewish people imagined as a storm-tossed sea, seem to have revealed themselves with even greater confidence over this past few years. Their chaos rages nearby, and many of us, many of us have felt the temptation to despair. Sisters and brothers, we need this meal more than ever. We need the visceral, tangible, experiential knowledge of our salvation. We need to be reminded that sin, death, and evil have already exhausted their power on our Savior's flesh. We need to taste and see again and again that the counterfeit gods of this world are but ashes in our mouths compared to the righteous feast of our Savior. We need to feel in our bodies the strong pull toward the good and the beautiful and the true personified in Jesus. We need to hear the church's testimony once again that though we can't, he can. We need this meal today more than ever. For at this table, our confession becomes our testimony. Weakness becomes strength. Foolishness becomes wisdom. Helplessness becomes hope. Exhaustion becomes endurance. At this table, the table you are about to be invited to come to, everything this world's idols tried to steal from us are returned and redeemed. Beauty for ashes, living flesh covering dry bones, Springs of life-giving water spilling through our dry and parched places. So church, come to the table this morning. Pulled away from captivity. Pulled again into fellowship with Christ and his people. By the bread and the cup. The body and the blood. Jesus, we say thank you again this morning for your body and your blood. We say thank you this morning, Jesus, for the invitation to find our identity, our security, and our belonging in you. To find it in you in a way that will actually transform our lives, in a way that will rescue us, and in a way that will set us down among a new family, an imperfect family, an always confessing and forgiving family, but a family that is held together by your very presence among us. So Jesus, make us hungry for you today. Make us thirsty for you today. Pull us away from anything that has held us captive. Where it, where it feels like relinquishment today, give us courage and increase our faith that we would be willing to open up our hands, taking the risk to finding our identity, our security, and our belonging in you. 
Oh, and Jesus, for those of us who need the rescue, let us come running to the table today, ready to once again hear the gospel of salvation proclaimed over every square inch of our lives. You have been faithful. You have been good. You are love itself. And so we will trust you today as we come to this table. In your name we pray. Amen.